Well, thank you for joining us on um, MEA Wednesday. I know that Pequot didn't have school. Brainerd did. So I'm guessing that there are people heading out for vacation for a long weekend. And thank you for spreading out and being so far away. <laughs> what is this, church? <laughs> Nobody wants to sit in the front except for Cedar and Tom and a few others. All right, let's get started and I'll pray. Father, I thank you for this community that we have, those that are able to join us this evening and those joining us from home. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be present and that we would feel you in this space. Lord, I thank you that we have your word to wrestle with, to have a better understanding of how it is that you want us to live in light of your love and your kingdom. Lord, I pray that this evening, our conversation, um, our teaching, our words would be pleasing and gratifying to you. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so last time I was teaching, I actually was sick, and now I'm still a little gravelly. So um, I'll, I'll pause appropriately so that I don't um, end up coughing. I want to start out um, this evening just by sharing with you some of the conversations that we had this morning um, in our morning um, conversation about the text that we're covering tonight. Because um, we talked about how the history of interpretation really influences what we see um, and what we hear about the text that we engage with. So everybody that comes um, on Wednesday morning for discussion has a different um, commentary. And Eric and I have all of the commentaries, well, except with the exception of one, um, and then a few others. And so they're covered, but it was really interesting this morning because um, I think that so many people are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes that maybe we came together this morning thinking that this was gonna be um, a conversation that just kind of flowed along. And what we found was that based on the different commentaries that people were reading, we brought different ideas and different things to the conversation um, that we had to take into consideration. And so it's just another reminder. I know I talked about this last time I was here up here teaching and talking about Matthew, but this idea of context is really important, and it spreads beyond the context of how we bring our context into reading scripture, because then we thought about it, we talked about it this morning, and we, we realized that the commentators, the commentaries that we are reading, the writer of those commentaries also brought their context to what they were writing. And so we're getting, that's why we're getting different commentaries and different opinions, different thoughts are, that are coming out. And then our conversation went a little bit further, and we asked the question, what role does the Holy Spirit play when we are engaging in Scripture? So what, does the, what is the role of the Holy Spirit when we engage? But then what is the role of the Holy Spirit, or what was the role of the Holy Spirit in the commentator's engagement with Scripture? And then even further back, what was the engagement of the Holy Spirit with Matthew when he was preparing for his audience? And so this idea of context and this idea of the engagement of the Holy Spirit 
as we interact with this text, kind of came out this morning, and it was like, oh, yes, there's this huge part of this. Um, there is an element of the Holy Spirit that we need to take into consideration. It's kind of like when, um, when I prepare to teach or when I prepare to preach, I'll read, and you'll see um, this will be part of the exercise or the discipline for this week, but we'll read the text, and we'll read the text several times, and then we'll just sit with it and be quiet, like literally sit and be quiet, opening up this opportunity for the Holy Spirit to engage with us. And so I don't know that in this fast-paced life we're very good at that. I know I'm not very good at it, and I actually have to work really hard um, at reading through text and not just going you know, straight to a commentary or straight to writing. And so if we can just sit with it and be. And so you'll see that is a discipline at the bottom of your um, questions for this week. So um, with that said, um, the Sermon on the Mount um, that we are going to engage with tonight is really important. And it's important that we remember um, hearing Matthew's gospel based on what he experienced, remember? So we talked about this, that we are, I am trying to stay, um, I don't know what the word is, I'm trying to stay within Matthew and not go too far into the other gospels and grab what they say. So staying authentically engaged with Matthew's gospel, and so that's how we're gonna approach um, how we look at it this evening, just like we did a couple of weeks ago. Um, and remembering, too, that he had his experience, he had his context, and he was speaking to a specific audience, and he had that audience in mind. So we know that Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven many times, more than any other author of a gospel. And so he seems to move through the Sermon on the Mount, and he's emphasizing this idea of the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to go by sections. So we won't read all the way through verses 1 through 20, but we'll start by reading um, verses 1 through 11. If you're in a blue Bible, it's on page 809. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for, the righteous, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The first, um, the fir little bit of context here with what we just read. 
there are suggestions that Matthew is pointing out that Jesus was um, speaking to three different groups of people. And so first would be the disciples, the four that previously we know that um, are following him, and then those that came after. Not just necessarily the 12, but people who have chosen to follow him and are following him. And then there's the crowd. These might be people that are onlookers. They're curious about what's going on, and they want to hear more of this, but they haven't actually made the commitment to follow Jesus. So that's the crowd. And then there's this idea of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes that we talked about before. And um, these were Jesus' opponents. They might have been curious about what he was teaching. Um, and remember, there's opposition there, and we'll talk about that a little bit later towards the end. Um, and they're still um, representing, and at the time, they're still representing and ascribing to the laws of the Old Testament. Okay? It's important also to understand that these the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes, are not prescriptive of how to get into the kingdom of God. Some people might see it that way, but that's not how they are intended. But rather, this is Jesus teaching what a spirit-empowered result of kingdom living would look like. If you have accepted Jesus and you choose to live like him, this is what it will look like. And so the sermon reveals this inside-out kind of transformation. A change in the heart, a transformation in the heart, would be revealed on the outside in how you interact with the world around you. Living in the already, but not yet, kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God here. Inner transformation also um, will transform the outer living as we said, and it, but it's not a magical thing, right? We know this. It's not like you choose to follow Jesus and all of a sudden, magically, you are going to live this righteous life. It's a choice that we may have to make every day, and it's not always easy. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first major um, teaching that we see in the Gospels. And so if a person were to pick up the Bible and start you know, in order reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the first actual teaching that they, of Jesus's that they would come across, and it's a pretty significant one. It's long, um, and it's pretty detailed, and it reveals the heart of what Jesus's teaching is about. And so verses 3 through 11 are called the Beatitudes, and they, act, they summarize in the essence of what the Sermon on the Mount is going to be about. And so when we consider what the word essence means, essence is the intrinsic nature or indispensable quality of something, especially something abstract that determines its character. So one could argue that the essence of the Beatitudes, the essence of the Sermon of, on the Mount, is this kingdom living. And so we could spend an entire week on each of these verses. And Eric, a few, I don't remember how long ago it was, when I think it was during the summer, he offered a class on the Sermon of the Mount, and he, was, he took more time to go through these. Um, but I will go through them and um, just kind of give maybe the essence of what they are, um, so that we can go through 
and see what else Jesus is teaching his disciples. To start with, the word beatitude is dis- de- derives from the Latin word beati, meaning blessed. So that's where we get the word beatitude, blessings. And you will also see some translations, you might have some translations that say happy are those or fortunate are those. And that is that has some translation, like history of translation there, dealing with the Greek and um, Latin translations. But a lot of our commentators and a lot of people, and myself included, see that today when we use the word happy, it would be challenging to, to read it as happy are those because we think about the word happy as an emotion, right? A state of being, like I'm happy today because um, my kid emptied the dishwasher when I asked him to, or I'm happy today because it's Wednesday. Um, And so it might be this fleeting thing and it doesn't necessarily grasp the, um, the depth and the full meaning of what it means to be blessed. So verse number three, and we'll go through these. Verse number three says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We think of the poor like in experiencing like economic hardship. That is oftentimes what we think of as the poor. These are blessed in the poor in spirit. This refers to people who are spiritually or emotionally oppressed and in need of God. And this includes us. When we recognize that we don't have it, like we can't do this on our own. We are in need of God, poor in spirit. And it doesn't mean it's a bad thing because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This attitude of humility in being poor in spirit, rejecting this pride and self-sufficiency opens us to the blessings of the kingdom of heaven. And it's also important to realize that this is an attitude and a posture. It's not a situational reality, right? So poor in spirit is is not necessarily a situational reality like we think about economic, um, economically poor or disadvantaged. So this is the type of poor in spirit that Jesus is talking about. And then number four, or verse number four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Again, we see these things differently from our context and our culture, and Jesus' teaching is giving us a different view of what these things are. So for example, mourning is not what we think of as bereavement, grieving the loss of something, but it pertains more to the grief over um, sin or evil that we see in the world. Um, a desire, it's, it's mourning, it's this deep desire for God's righteousness to prevail in the world. And so those that mourn that, they shall be comforted in what is to come. So that's the example of mourning. And then verse number five, blessed are the meek. Um, this is a shift from a personal kind of quality to an interpersonal quality, like how do you interact with other people? These people are not um, asserting themselves. If you think about a meek person, um, they're not asserting themselves or they're over others, and they're not um, trying to advance their own causes. 
These are not domineering, harsh, or aggressive people. But it's also important to point out that um, one can still be domineering and aggressive without being overtly obnoxious about it. We can be aggressive in a very passive way. And that does not mean that you're meek or you're gentle. It just means that you're manipulative or we are being manipulative if we're being passive aggressive. So meek in this sense is actually a gentle person. And it doesn't imply a weakness or being a doormat, but more like the previous, more of this sense of humility in our inner, interpersonal interactions with people. So we can kind of put ourselves aside. We don't have an agenda. We're not aggressive in, in necessarily pounding our you know, agenda or what we want to get across. And so these are the people who shall inherit the earth. It's those that choose to follow and live the way God is, or Jesus is instructing. Um, as he teaches, those are the ones that are, those are the people who are going to experience the inheritance now on earth, back then, then, when they are meek. Verse number, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If a person is literally hungry or thirsty, they're in dire need. And I'm talking about literally. I'm not talking about my 18-year-old stomping up the stairs into the kitchen saying there's nothing to eat in the house, I'm starving. Like, are you really starving? I don't really think you are. But in this case, we're talking about somebody that is in dire need of something. And so this type of need is the need that we should have for God's righteousness and justice in this world. We should want that. We should have this dire need. So this hunger and this thirst for righteousness. For they will be satisfied. As hearts transformed, as hearts are transformed, God's righteousness and justice, justice should be outwardly manifested as we change our hearts, as God's desire for righteousness and justice transforms our heart, then that should be our desire, that God's desire should become ours. And the kingdom living is now, and it was back then for, for them as well, when Jesus was teaching, and it is also for the kingdom of heaven to come. So we have to remember when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about what Jesus inaugurated when he, arrived, when he came to earth and the idea so that it's here and then it's yet to come because we know that there is an eternity ahead of us and heaven is yet to, that heaven is yet to come. Um, verse number seven, blessed are the merciful. Mercy is a central theme in the Bible. And it's because of God's mercy, merciful love, that he doesn't give us what we actually deserve, which would be eternal separation from him. So this idea of mercy, not getting what you actually deserve, mercy's hard. How do we show mercy? What are ways that we can show mercy? 
I actually had to take some time to think about this and have a conversation with the office neighbor next door. What are ways that we can show mercy, even in the simplest way? Forgiveness. Bite your tongue. Not give a tongue lashing, even though they might deserve it. I, I have to tell you, I, I have been really practicing my mercy when speaking with some of the teenagers in my house. And I bite my tongue so hard some days, but I'm just like, okay, they don't need to, I don't need to let them have that. They'll figure it out. What else? Turn the other cheek. And we'll see that. Yeah. I mean, even as simple as, it doesn't even have to be this biblical thing. I mean, not honking at somebody who cut you off. I mean, that's trivial and that's super simple, but I feel like mercy is something that we really have a hard time grasping because sometimes we have this attitude or we see people and it's even in our media, it's in our movies, like you're going to pay for what you did or you're going to get what you have coming to you. I'm going to make sure that you pay for that. I mean, we see it all the time. Somebody's going to have to pay for whatever wrong it is. Yeah, Russ. Oh, so Russ has been a substitute teacher at Pequot in um, algebra, right, the math department. And so extending grace or, show, or mercy, excuse me, in um, your grading. So <laughs> were any of my kids <laughs> recipients of your mercy? <laughs> Could have been. Right. So who benefits from that mercy? When we extend mercy, who benefits from it? Okay, both sides, and that's what this is getting at. So when we, when we can be merciful and we don't have this attitude of like holding a grudge or, or delivering what they have coming or making sure that they pay for it or giving them like the tongue lashing that they deserve, um, or, okay, I have had some local law enforcement extend some mercy f on me in the past, like a while ago. It was not recent. Um, but sometimes there's a stoplight in Niswa that turns like red real fast. And so I have been extended mercy. There's a great example. I just thought of it. So thank you if you're watching. I don't remember who it was because I was like, oh my gosh, I cannot get a ticket. <laughs> I was embarrassed. So, okay. So we, we, those that are extending mercy will also um, benefit from it as well. And that's what he's saying. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. It's the offer of mercy that opens the giver to receive the mercy that Jesus proclaims in his teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And I've experienced this mercy in an experience where I had to extend a tremendous amount of mercy. And I'll tell you that what I actually received was a peace. Like that thing 
no longer overtook my brain. It, the, the anger or the resentment or whatever it was causing, um, that internal battle that I had, once mercy was extended, the gift that I had was actually peace. It was no longer, um, I released it and extended mercy because of the idea that I have been extended mercy, but it's not an easy thing to do. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Purity and cleanliness were important religious themes back then, right? We remember the washing and the purity of the Old Testament and even into the, the time that Jesus was doing, um, ministering and teaching. But the Old Testament laws of being clean bypass the most important period, purity of all, the period of the heart. There's no washing, physical washing, that can produce the purity of the heart that Jesus is asking for. Because the purity of the heart is what produces this external show, this external life, this external change that is purity, a pure heart, we'll see it, right? For they shall see God. Those with a pure heart will see God. Those that are devoted and loyal to God, their pure heart, devoted and loyal to God, will see Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And they will see God at work now, then, when he was teaching, and they will see the work that is to come. So that's how the peer of heart, those devoted to God, loyal to God, will see God. Verse number nine, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons and daughters of God. The peacemakers, peace, is another theme throughout the Bible. And this is not referring to peacekeepers, some of us might wear or carry the role of a peacekeeper in our family, meaning that we're going to juggle people's behavior and reactions so that there's nothing, no explosive thing that happens. That's the peacekeeper, and that is not what is being talked about here. This is talking about a peacemaker. So this means that you are active, you're actively working towards ending hostilities, right? Not just holding it at bay, like you stay in your corner and be quiet and you stay over here and please don't talk like that or I'm not inviting that person or you just stay over here in your corner and you stay over there. We're actually talking about being deliberate and actively engaging in ending hostility. And so what would it actually take to end hostility? Any kind of hostil hostility. What would it take? It's not really a rhetorical question. What do you think it would take to end hostility? Yes, people actually talking. And not just talking, because there are plenty of people talking, right? There are plenty of people talking right now. And they will be until November 6th, right? Is that the day? Eighth. Yeah, sixth was last year maybe. There's plenty of people talking. What else? Listening. 
love. Seeing from other people's perspectives rather than our own. Yeah, this kind of, um, this made me think about seeing, pers- seeing other people's pers- per- perspectives. Even in reading commentaries, I have some commentary authors that I don't gravitate towards because I don't really love the way they say things. Or maybe I don't see how they got to a certain point. But it's still important for me to be able to hear and experience what they are communicating. Um, Because what if the Holy Spirit, remember we're talking about the engagement of the Holy Spirit when we're engaged in in, uh, Scripture. What if the Holy Spirit uses something that somebody wrote that I didn't particularly care for, but what if it sticks in the back of my head, you know, and it's something that just kind of lingers there. So yeah, listening, talking, empathizing, right? Trying to, that's what Amy said, trying to get and understand another person's perspective. And grace and mercy, all of the things that have been extended to us if those were extended to other people, could that break down the hostility? Could that allow more peacemakers? I think so. And that's what we're called to be. That is exactly what Jesus is calling his followers to be. They are called the sons and daughters of God. His inauguration of the kingdom of heaven, he is the supreme peacemaker right? He is the one who ends the hostility. By choosing to follow Jesus, live like him, and make peace, one inherits the kingdom, making us sons and daughters of God. No, that's just my example of, you know, when we think of peace, um, when there's not peace, oftentimes it's hostility, What's another example that you're thinking? Yep. Oh, yeah. Okay. So offering um, a soothing sense of peace and calm, maybe. Yeah. Yep, that makes sense. So if you are somebody who is um, in a bad situation, in a dire type of situation, coming and needing some type of support, um, and you being that person who can bring some peace to the situation. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think hostility is more of an extreme example, but even just conflict. You know, conflict doesn't have to necessarily be hostile. I guess I was just trying to give it some punch. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, right. Yeah, what is, what, he doesn't tell us exactly what he's talking about. Other than 
bringing the, bringing the odds together, right? Because there are, you know, there are people who are um, oppo- opposing their opponents of what Jesus is doing. So are, is that what he's talking about? You know, closing that and, and ending that conflict or that hostility? It seems that it could certainly be the case. Number 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is not a call for people to be persecuted or to seek persecution in order to be blessed by God or experience his blessings. Instead, it's actually a condemnation of those persecuting and a comfort for those under persecution for living the righteous life that Jesus calls them to live. And so for, our, for their, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, and the inheritance of the kingdom of God is the reward that far outweighs the consequences. There is hostility still everywhere. People are still being persecuted. They were, you know, he, he was telling them, you will be persecuted. And it's still happening. And so he's saying, the kingdom of heaven is yours. You have that ahead of you. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now the focus is shifting. So this is where we might see where somebody would say he was addressing different groups of people. So this goes from using a third person, blessed are those, to second person, blessed are you. So here it seems that he is speaking to disciples, those that have chosen to follow him. And he goes on in verse 12, and he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Even the kingdom of heaven, even though the kingdom of heavens have arrived, Jesus has arrived, he has inaugurated the kingdom of heaven, it, is, it has not ushered in this state of peace and safety. But still, we can rejoice, they can rejoice, because the kingdom of heaven is coming and that is yours. And then we move past. Those are the Beatitudes. And then we move in. And um, Jesus is still speaking to disciples. And we'll start with 13 and go to 16. Page 810. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may, may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So there's two metaphors here, and um, these metaphors are telling the disciples how they're living, how they should be impacting the world in regards to kingdom living, the instruction that Jesus is giving. Even though they can expect persecution, Jesus is saying, you are the salt and the light. 
Why salt and light, though? Why did he choose those? They were pretty important and, and common things. And, I mean, we don't give a lot of thought to it. Um, and there are varying details in, in different um, interpretations of the history of salt and the use of salt. Um, but just for basic understanding, um, salt was an ele element that was found in the earth. And it's a stable element, and it was used for preservation of food, we usually think about, and then also the enhancement of the flavor of food, among other things. But if salt were to lose its flavor or its saltiness, it wouldn't be worth using. You wouldn't put salt on your food if it didn't taste like salt. It's not worth using. So some would argue that salt can't actually lose its taste because it's actually a stable element, and that gets into, you know, kind of the weeds, um, meaning that Jesus, the other thing is that this may mean that Jesus is saying, you cannot lose your effectiveness in this world. If salt can't lose its effectiveness, its saltiness, you cannot lose your effectiveness in this world. As in, this is an imperative. Do not lose your effectiveness for advancing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on and he uses light to push this message even further. There's an association with light and darkness, um, sin and evil being equated to the darkness, and Jesus being the light, and that's thread throughout the Bible. And it also talks about them being like a city on a hill. Think about a city on a We don't have a lot of mountains and hills here, but let's say on Skigal. You're driving by hole in the day, and you look over there, and there's houses on the east-facing side of Skigal. That would be like a city on the hill. You can't not see it. And so that's what he's talking about. It's like a, it's like a light or a city on a hill. You can't not see it. So this is another imperative. You are the light, a living testimony of the kingdom living, um, the kingdom of heaven here for those who have not seen or do not have the light. So like salt, light doesn't shine. If light doesn't shine, it's not effective, right? We need it. If it doesn't shine, it's not effective. And it seems like, duh, but I think that's kind of why these metaphors were used. They're pretty simple metaphors. Salt and light are ordinary. They're simple, they're ordinary, and we don't really think about them a lot unless we're out of salt or a light bulb burns out or a light switch is broken or something like that. So we don't really think a lot about it. In our lives, I think, we don't really think about how our lives can be impactful in the ordinariness of our daily life. And this is not saying you have to have this extraordinary, spectacular you know, life of showing people what this is. But in your daily, ordinary life and how you do life with others, how you interact with others in very routine, ordinary ways, that too should be representing the live, living the light, living in light of God's kingdom here on earth. And so thinking about that as, you know, a common, these are common things that we think about, easy to think about, salt, not losing its saltiness, light has to be on. We need to be salt and we need to be light. 
So then he continues, and he's still speaking to his two disciples. And we're starting at verse 17, and we'll go to the end to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So some background here about this. Um, there is tension and there is opposition by, from the religious teachers of the time to Jesus because it seems like Jesus is not fully orthodox in his commitment to the Old Testament because he's teaching different things, right? So this is where the opposition and the tension comes in. So here, Jesus is making it clear that he understands and is committed to the Old Testament. He is not suggesting that his arrival does away with the, what the Old Testament communicated about God and what his will is for humanity. That doesn't go away because he has come. And that history from the Old Testament is still valuable. Jesus brings to fulfillment what the Old Testament revealed about God's will for humanity. This is what he was talking about with the, with the prophets. He came to fulfill the hope that we see in the Old Testament. And we talked about that when we were going through Hebrews, that hope and that faith that we had in what was to come. And this, this is Jesus saying, I'm fulfilling part of that. So the Old, old OT, Old Testament, um, principle of this penalty and payment for sins um, still must be understood as the will of God, like there is a penalty and a payment for sin, but the commandment of blood shed for atonement and temple sacrifice of the Old Testament, as an example, is no longer legally binding, is what he said and what he's saying. So the Old Testament has been fulfilled with the New Testament in Jesus. So again, we go back to this idea of righteousness, too, in verse 20. It calls for an inward righteousness, a transformation of the heart that leads to an outward righteousness. This is the kingdom living that we see. This is what, if, we, if the inside, our heart has changed, our heart is pure, it's loyal and devoted to God, there will be an outward change in how we live. This was a different kind of living than what Jesus' audience or Matthew's could have even imagined. Like, this was outrageous. When he says, live, um, when he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. At that time, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're the ones that were keeping the law. They're, they were the ones that were helping to keep people right. So how could they possibly 
live a more righteous life than them because they were the ones that were upholding the righteousness of the law. And so this was, like, they're probably, what do you, what? How could you possibly ask us to do that? But this is a different kind of living. It's the adherence and the fulfillment of these laws that is actually the love, that was the love for God. That's what Jesus came to do. He fulfilled the love of God. The law of love, love, loving God, that pure heart, that loyalty to God, the law of love in the Old Testament is the result of Jesus' inauguration into the kingdom of heaven. He inaugurated that. It happened. So Jesus' Sermon on the Mount taught his audience what this love actually looked like lived. And then Matthew, now we're, doing, we're thinking about this context again. And then Matthew uses his experience with Jesus' sermon to teach his audience. And then we have Matthew's experience written in scripture here to teach us what the kingdom, um, what kingdom living is to look like and what it is to be. And for us in our context, now we have each other, we have our community, we have other resources to wrestle with um, and look at and talk about what does it mean to live the way Jesus is teaching them and us to live today in light of the kingdom of God. And so that's why this opportunity that we have to come together and the opportunity that we have to be able to break out into groups and have these discussions, discussions like, you know, took place this morning and the discussions that you're going to take, that will take place now. This is how we wrestle and we figure out what does it mean, what does it look like to live the way Jesus has taught us to live in light of the kingdom of God. And so you can go into your groups. Um, I will point out that one, uh, we added a question. Well, we added several questions that pertain to tonight, to tonight. But one of them is, how did it go? How did your practice of your discipline from last week go? If you did the discipline, how, how did it go for you? And then maybe that's a question that will keep reappearing every year. If you don't have questions, there's some on the table in the back and there's some in the front on the chair. We good?